Hi, this is the See You Next Tuesday podcast. We have dirty words and shit potholes throughout the entire episode. Our name literally spells Kant. How could you not know what was coming? Thanks for listening. Jesse, we're gonna see you next Tuesday. We flip the script again only because I'm so excited. <laughs> she's very excited, like, she's like bouncing around here. <laughs> hey, I'm excited about my dad because my man cunt, and I have a story for you. Oh, pre the man cunt, uh huh. Oh, okay, go, go, go. Okay, so, um, you know, my daughter goes to college in a town that has a prison, yes. So, um I found out some things. Every single time they do a prisoner check where they count the prisoners, loud bells go off and it happens three times a day and they can all hear it on campus. Seriously? Yes. And I found this out because um, the power went out on campus the other day. And I panicked. And I was like, what about the prison? What about the prison? Did the power go out on the prison? Because you know that um, the cell door is locked by power. And, you know, Pod Hubby's like, you're being a little crazy because you know that they're going to have, like, backup generators and shit. Because you know the prison I'm talking about. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So. One would hope they would, at least. Because, I mean. She's like, Mom, I don't know. Um, I'm sure it's fine. We only got updates about campus. Oh, my God. (laughs) But I'm like, oh, my God. What about that prison? Please, please let me know everything's okay. And your daughter's like, chill. It's Uh, fine. And, you know, um, she will see chain gangs around town. Really? I'm sure they're called work duty or something. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. Nothing's changed. Just name it a different thing. It is what it is. Yeah. Wow. I'm a little disappointed the times I have gone, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, again, if for anyone that's new here, Pod Daughter is going to be a criminal... What um, was she majoring in? Well, three for, things. Okay. So she's a dual major in dance and psychology with a minor in criminal justice because she wants to do um, forensic psychology. I mean, the depth of that girl... Oh. You know what I mean? And her GPA was a 4.0, and she was invited to join a um, smart people, like, <laughs> honor society. And she goes to work full-time as well. Two jobs. Uh, two jobs. I don't know how she does this at all, because I did the same thing, and my GPA went from 3.8 to a 2.8. So I got out of there... <laughs> Right on time with a gentleman C. <laughs> yes, she has a 4.0. She was invited to join Alpha Lambda something. Oh, wow. Um, which is like a scholastic honor society. Wow. My son, who is also a freshman in college, also had a 4.0, works full time. He also got invited to join a um, same thing, Scholastic Honor Society. His is called something else. Because it's different school. Different school. Yeah. He also got an email saying he's on the dean's list. Jeez. That's just incredible, especially freshmen. Because most of the time, freshmen is where you, you fuck around. Because you just like, <laughs> fuck it, I'm finally free from my parents, you know? Yeah, and if you think they don't go out and have fun, go back a couple of episodes yeah. and you'll listen to the story about how my son rolled up with some cases of beer. Like it was all chill, and <laughs> for, you were like, what? For Thanksgiving, and then he did the same thing at Christmas. So, I still have um, one of his Coors Lights in my refrigerator that he accidentally left behind. Oh, God. So if you think that they're not having fun, they still are having fun. Somehow they fit it into that schedule. We don't know how, but they do. It's impressive. So, I mean, but also, the the other thing here is Pod Daughter is going to be kind of like our inside line to yes. all this true crime shit that we talk yes. about. <laughs> so hang on for a couple of years because then we're going to have like... 
yeah. the good shit. Well, even if she takes classes, we can start asking her questions, you know, like certain yeah. classes. Yeah. Once she gets there. Yeah, when she gets there. Because, you know, it's all the basics at the beginning. It's all that shit. Yeah, we got to We got to Hold on tight, guys. Hold on tight. Bear with us. You got to get through our bullshit to get to the good bullshit. <laughs> all two of you. Oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's correct. On that note, do you want to get into your guy? You're like chomping at the bit, so I'm going to let you go. Yes. Okay. So, Charles Void, V-O-Y-D-E, Void. All right. Yeah. Sounds like Void to me. Charles Void Harrelson, a.k.a. Chuck, was boing. Boing. (laughs) Boing. I promise. I have not been drinking today, and I have not had a gummy either. I prefer the, the 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 image of him boinging out of his mom. Boing boing. He like jumps out. Hey, <laughs> y'all, this is me completely sober. <laughs> I'm a good time, sober or not. <laughs> he was born in Lovelady, Texas, on July twenty third, nineteen thirty nine, to Alma Lee and Void Harrelson. I'm going to tell you about Lovelady, Texas, because I've lived here my whole life and I never heard of heard of it. Heard of it? Never been. You've heard of Love Lady? Yeah, because I was like, how do you pronounce it? Because you know in Texas, Guadalupe is Guadalupe. No. Manchac, Manchaca is Manchac. You know, like we fuck everything up. So I'm like, is it Love Lady or Love Lady? Love Lady? I say, lo- I say Love Lady. Okay, we're going to go with that. But I'm going to tell you about it. So it's north of Huntsville and just south of Crockett. So we're talking West Texas, y'all. Yeah, if you're still confused. West, West Texas. Texas. <laughs> So, in 2021, the population was 621. Uh, so, that's why most of us have not heard of this. Yes. Yeah. And the East Ham units of the Texas Department of Corrections is there. It's a medium security unit. Um, so, maybe there's a little foreshadowing. We'll find out. Hmm. There are more inmates and staff at the prison than people in town. There are 2,400 inmates and 718 staff. That's about right. Okay, this is taking me back to where my grandparents used to live, which I'm going to say it. It's Eden, Texas, like Eden, like the Garden of Eden. Oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is. Yep. And they also have a, well, it's a... A juvenile detention center, isn't it? Yep. And it's like, I'm going to say lower security. It's not like, you know, hardened murderers are there necessarily, but... it's. It's probably a, a juvenile detention center, not part of the where they go when they have to serve time. Is is it like um, Gardner Betts in Travis County where they go until they have to go to trial? No, I think it's like it is like an actual like penitentiary. Like people stay there, but it's not. It's different. It's it's a it's a, it's a lower level of crime, I guess. I don't know. Point is, yes. When as soon as it came to town. Everybody got a job because there's really nothing else there. It's like 1,300 yeah. people. And when you live in a small town, like 620, yeah, you have to go somewhere else to work. You do. But let me tell you, I want to live in a town with 620 fucking people. You do? Yes, 132,000%. Okay, so this is like that thing that we were talking about the other night where you were like, because we were driving through like country roads late at night, and I'm like, this is so fucking creepy. I'm just expecting a murderer to come out of the woods, and you're like, oh, this is like exactly where I want to live. Yeah, that's... Super dark. I'm like, no! Yeah, that's where we're retiring. Not me and you, me and my actual husband. Can it be in like Canada so... We can go to Canada to visit you. Can you retire in Canada in a really small town? No. <laughs> my husband wants to retire in Montana. Oh, th- you might as well be in Canada, Canada at that point. Canada? You're basically there. Canada. We're going to yeah, retire Canada. in Canada. Yeah. We'll discuss my retirement plans in a few years when I actually get there. We will, and I must be included. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> 102%. Anyway, Love Lady Texas. Okay, so that's all I have about Love Lady. I just want to... I think those things are like fun facts. You know how much I love my fun facts. (laughs) So Chuck was married to Nancy Hillman Harrelson, Joanna Harrelson, Diana Lou, Oswald, and Gina Foster. At the same time? No, he just was married lots. He loved the ladies. Okay. So after leaving school, Charles moved to California. He became an encyclopedia salesman. Um, but I guess encyclopedias weren't paying the bills because Chuck was also a professional gambler. 
Um, and he must have won at gambling about as much as I win the lottery because in 1960, he was convicted of armed robbery. Oh, shit. So, Chuck may have been married a lot, but he only had three children. And he had those children with Diane Lou Oswald. Diane Lou Oswald Harrelson, sorry. Um, he His three children were Jordan Harrelson. I couldn't find much information on him. Not even his birthday. Brett V. Harrelson, born June 4th, 1963. And then he had a third child that was actually born on his birthday, July 23rd, 1961. Woodrow Tracy Harrelson. Everyone called him Woody. (laughs) Woody Harrelson. Oh, my God. Wait, is this actually Woody? Wait, is this Woody Harrelson's family? Yes. Oh, shit, you're doing children of God, aren't you? Aren't you? Oh, my God. Sorry, guys. I get really hyped up over shit like this. I love me a good cult. Ooh. No, it's not. This isn't Woody Harrelson's life? Because it wasn't he part of Children of God. I know the, the Phoenixes were. I, I'm not covering Woody Harrelson. I'm covering Woody Harrelson's dad. Uh, so this is his father. This is his yes. dad. Yes. Oh, my God. I love Woody Harrelson, by the way. I love Woody Harrelson as a person and as an actor. I don't think, if I see his name in the billing of a movie, I'm like, I'm going to go watch that movie because it's going to be a good movie. I, I was waiting for it to click in your head. I'm like. Because, I mean, Harrelson like, is a pretty common guy like, name. oh my God, Woody Harrelson, that's stupid. I'm like, wait for it. It's about to click. It's about to click. No, because when you said Woody, I was like, but there's a famous actor named Woody, so it's not that weird. And then I was like, oh, Woody Harrelson. <laughs> I knew he was a Texas boy. Oh my God. I love you, Woody Harrelson, if you hear this. I do love him. So Chuck was a stand-up guy. And he disappeared disappeared while the family was living in Houston in 1968. Perfect. Obviously, Diane did an amazing job raising the three boys on her own. Um, Clearly. Yes, she did. Woody didn't know where Chuck was until 1981. And I will tell you more about how he found out about his whereabouts later. Okay. So... This is a little crazy. And I don't even know where to put it in the story. So we're just going to throw it in right here. Because I don't... This is fucking crazy. So, there's a reporter, Jack Anderson. He believes that Charles was involved in the assassination of JFK. Okay. In the book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll... John Craig and Philip Rogers claim that Charles and Charles Rogers were the two gunmen behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. Charles even made claims claims he was part of the assassination, and some conspiracy theorists believe he was one of the three tramps. But it has been proven he wasn't because they have been identified as Gus Abrams, Harold Doyle, and John Jedney. What? Okay, so this reporter is claiming that his, Woody Harrelson's dad was part of the people, two people that killed JFK. Yes. And it's been proven otherwise, obviously. Well, they claim he was two of the gunmen behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. Okay. And then um, some other conspiracy theorists believe Chuck was one of the three tramps. But it's been proven that the three tramps are Gus Abrams, Harold Doyle, and John Jedney. So that's been proven he's not one of the three tramps. But if you believe the grassy knoll theory, Jack Anderson thinks he was one of the two gunmen behind the picket fence. Okay. I gotcha. I know. It's crazy. It's insane. It makes me laugh. I I don't fully disagree with... Okay, I'll get into my conspiracy theory about the JFK um, assassination whenever we get there. Because I... uh, What are you doing? I'm looking up something because the girls um, from MFM actually talked to, on a celebrity hometown, a... um, Let's see here. A celebrity guest. Okay, Josh Mankiewicz. Excuse me. He's from NBC Dateline. And his dad was also a journalist, so I was trying to remember if it was his father that maybe you were talking about here, but it's not. However, 
the story that Josh Mankiewicz says about JFK, I believe. So, Can I say it here, or is it better I just wait to, to say my crazy theory about the assassination? You just wait. Okay. So, Alan Harry Berg was a carpet salesman in Houston, and he was lured to the bar by a phone call from a mysterious woman promising sexual favors. Bro, if a strange woman calls offering sexual favors, hang the fuck up. It's not what you think it is. Hang up. Women just don't call bars offering sexual favors to whoever, like, picks up the phone. <laughs> I don't know about well, you. Well, I think they called him at home. Okay. Um, And said, I'll meet you at the bar. Oh, okay. But even still. Yeah. Nobody and does it, this. If, if y'all follow our... Social media, I posted that on social media the other day when I was typing it up. Yeah, you'll see it from a hot minute ago. You'll see it. <laughs> I oh, was... my glory. Oh. So the evidence shows that Alan was then kidnapped and killed. And there were two theories for Alan's murder. It was payback for his father's bad-mouthing a former employee in the community. And then there's evidence that Alan had significant gambling debts. And Charles was actually tried and acquitted for Alan's murder. Oh, wow. Alan's brother believes one of the reasons for Alan's acquittal was because the prosecution was just sloppy and they were not prepared for some of the defense's tactics. Um, and Charles actually later confessed that he was the one that murdered Alan. But so, it was after his acquittal, but so... Double jeopardy. Yeah. Wait, so he murdered Alan? Why? Allegedly. He, just, he admitted it. He confessed after the fact. So, I mean, there's no alleged about it. He just wasn't convicted for it. I mean... Holy shit. Did he, did he say why? No. He just shot him. Just gambling debts and shit? Just got pissed. I mean... Wow. We could... Okay. Okay. You just... So... So he is violent. He is capable of it, is what we're saying. So, Fair. Sam Delgia Jr. was a resident of Hearn, Texas... Which is actually west of College Station. Which is north of Austin, which is like more centrally, kind of central east, I guess. So it's. Uh, Go to Google. Yeah, so, okay, Hearn is a very tiny town. I did not get all the data for Hearn because honestly, I know exactly where it is. So I. You don't really need to. I didn't. Like, yeah. I didn't know where Love Lady was, so I wanted the info. But I know about Hearn, so I didn't get that for you guys. No worry. It's not. It's of no My bad. So it's west of College Station. Sam was a grain dealer and a father of four. Sam was in business with his bestie, Pete Thomas Scramardo. But what I'm sure Sam didn't know was that Pete was also in business with Charles. So what kind of business could Pete and Charles have together? Oh, you know, just a little bit of heroin trafficking. No big deal. Whoa, Charles, you were going from gambling to heroin trafficking? It's so, a big step. So Pete was heavily in debt, and I'm going to assume, I'm assuming, no real fact here, that it was in to the cartel or whoever he was getting his heroin from, mm. because desperate men do de desperate men do desperate things, and Pete wanted Sam dead so he could collect Sam's life insurance. Okay, and and also yeah, if that were the case, which we're not saying it is, then yeah, you got a lot of pressure. You might want to resolve that. Yeah, with those people. So Pete's solution was to hire Charles for two thousand dollars to murder Sam. Okay, and I'm assuming because Charles is now kind of being known among the criminal underworld. He's mm -hmm. already killed a guy, so they know he's capable. So, since he was hired, since Pete hired him to murder Sam, I'm pretty sure Charles was hired to murder Alan. You think he, oh, so, oh, so that way, that's why there is no why behind the other murder. It's more like I'm a contract killer at this mm -hmm. point because this helps me. Fuel my habits. Right. Okay. So, um, $2,000 in today's time is $16,023.10. <gasps> when, when did this happen? Um, did I forget to put dates on here? Ugh. So. No worries. Point is, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, a little bit of contract killing. Cool. So, murder for hire is not a 
is kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, So kinda. Charles did serious jail time, right? Oh, God. Well, the first trial, the jury was deadlocked. Um, what the fuck? Okay, so the prosecution stepped up their game for the second trial, right? Nope. Charles was found guilty, but he was sentenced to 15 years. And with time off for good behavior, he was out in five. Oh, jeez. Awesome. But I'm sure he learned his lesson, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. So, so a little side note. Pete was tried and found guilty for being an accomplice to Sam's murder and sentenced to seven years probation. Well, and you know, if that's the case, then shit. So What's this stopping was, us? This was the <laughs> 60s, y'all. Uh, this was the 60s. I mean, yeah, I could see how it would be a lot less back then where it's like, eh, you know, he didn't really do it, so not that big a deal. <laughs> it's just it's just crazy. It's like, but he already killed someone in the past. He's going to do it. Like, he was going to do it. You just caught him before he did it. Yeah, so. Okay. So after he got out of jail, good old Chuck hooked back up with one of his friends, Jamiel Chagra, who was not really a choir boy. He was a drug dealer. Mm. And they did what old friends who hadn't seen each other do in a while. They talked about the good old days, right? No. Um, so that's um, when Jamel began talking about how he had a job opening, you know, customer service, cashier, yeah. accounting department, delivery yeah. driver, something like that. No, 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 none of the above. He needed a hit, man. So Jamiel has been said to have been, and I'm quoting, no less than the biggest marijuana smuggler in the country oh, during the 60s and 70s and was set to appear before Judge John H. Wood, who is known as... Maximum John for giving out the maximum prison terms for drug dealers. Oof. So on May 29th, 1979, John was shot as he was leaving his Alamo Heights San Antonio townhome. He was the first federal judge to be murdered in the 20th century. Holy shit. They pulled out a hit on their judge? Damn. That is ballsy. So, Jamiel paid um, Charles $250,000, which, that's a lot of money no matter what time frame it is. Hold on. That is a lot of money. Oh, my God. Hold on. My, my math, don't, it's not working out. So, um, either added a zero here. Still, the point is. So, anyways, he got, got a fuck paid, ton of money. He got paid money. It was either two hundred fifty thousand dollars or twenty five thousand dollars. Well, either way, twenty five or two fifty is a ton of money. Because I have the trans. Oh, it must be twenty five then. Yeah, because I have it as ninety six thousand sixty one dollars and ninety eight cents. Oh, in today's money, mm-hmm. so it's almost a hundred thousand dollars yeah. today. Back then, it was twenty five thousand. Yeah, again, insane for the assassination of Judge Wood. Shit. Charles was not a suspect right away, and the FBI conducted more than 30,000 interviews and collected more than 500,000 pieces of information, and the investigation costed more than $11 million before the police got a tip that Charles was the one who murdered the judge, and so they arrested him in 1982. Okay, oh, hello, hello. Go look at the associates. How fucking hard is this? You don't need... To spend $11 million to ask, okay. hey, so, they, have you seen these two people together? So, Especially with Charles already being in front of judges. This was no less, this was the biggest marijuana smuggler in the country. So how many associates do you think he had? Oh, uh, thousands. So, yes, of course, it's going to take them a long time to look through all the associates. Oh, fair. But still, it's just like, again, if there's this guy who keeps coming up and getting... It, on trials for murder or attempted murder or attempted, like, assassinate. Hello? Maybe look at that guy? Just so, saying. Start with him, you know? So, um, 
They arrested Charles in 82, and that's when they began to put the case against him together. They arrest him first, and then the 80s. 80s cop work. Oh, backwards. So now we have 48 hours uh, to hold him and do all our work in 48 hours. So witnesses claim they saw him in the area of the judge's home, but there was no physical evidence against him. Um, Charles was arrested, and he confessed to being one of the shooters that killed JFK, but later retracted his confession. And in in 88, Charles told the producer of The Men Who Killed Kennedy, Nigel Turner, that on November 22nd, 1982, at 12.30, I was having lunch with a friend in a restaurant in Houston, Texas. He also told Nigel that he would never have accepted the contract because if he had, he would have ended up like Lee Harvey Oswald being killed by the mafia. Wait, do you mean November 2nd, 1962? Because that's when Kennedy was shot? Yes, Okay, okay, I was just making sure. I was like, wait a minute. So he was having lunch with a friend and he was like, yeah, I would never do that because, you know, look at Lee Harvey. Look what happened to that guy. He was killed by the mafia. I would have never taken that contract job, but I'll take all these other contract jobs. Hmm. Hmm. The case is looking stronger against him. You know I don't do conspiracies. I know. So the prosecution's sole evidence against good old Chuck was a jailhouse conversation between Jamiel and his brother Joe, where Jamiel tells Joe this is the perfect way to avoid a long prison sentence. Charles's lawyers tried to argue that the jailhouse conversation was taped illegally and should be thrown out, but the judge overruled them for controversial reasons. Honestly, I couldn't find out what those were. Um, yeah, because in Texas, this is a one-party state, meaning as long as one of the people who is being recorded knows that the recording is happening, that's all you need. So you can record anyone at any time, but one way or the other. It either has to be video, no sound, or sound, no video. Did Jamiel or Joe know they were being recorded? Don't think they did. No. So the defense also unsuccessfully tried to get the change of venue because everyone knew about the case and the trial was taking place in the newly named John H. Wood Jr. Courthouse. Oh, because they named it after the guy who died. Yeah. Which, yeah. And the trial judge was federal judge William Sessions, who was also a pallbearer at Judge Wood's funeral, and delivered a eulogy. Is that? That's a different sessions. Sorry, I was like, wait, sessions, 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 from our last administration sessions. Mm-mm. So both the Char- Chagra brothers were charged with the assassination of Wood, along with Chuck. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Y'all, I can't make this shit up. I wish I could. I wish I could make this shit up. This right here is the gift that keeps on giving. According to the prosecution, Charles's current wife, Joanne, purchased a high-power Weatherby hunting rifle, the same kind the FBI said killed the judge. She purchased it 12 days before the murder. The person who bought the rifle was using the name Faye King. You know, faking. Oh my God. Wow, guys. Talk about like a fuck you to all the police, though. That's pretty good. Bay King. Yeah. Baking. Yeah. I I couldn't make that up. No. I, I wish I was that smart. That's pretty good. Like, I wish I was writing a novel and I could make that shit up. <laughs> but then people would be like, oh, that is such like a cop out. And it's like, yeah, I know. Look, it actually happened. <laughs> So, Joe was convicted with Charles, and he received a 10-year sentence, but Jimmy was, you know, Jamiel, they called him Jimmy, he was acquitted of murder charges, but convicted of obstruction of justice and drug charges because Joe would not roll on his brother. But Joe had no problems rolling on Chuck. Oh, yeah, no, fuck that guy. So, (laughs) Joe testified that Jimmy broached the topic of having the judge killed and Joe told him that he thought he should, and that later Jimmy told him he hired Charles to kill Judge Wood. After 18 hours of deliberation, several jurors were in tears when Charles was given two life sentences plus five years on six counts of planning, carrying out, and trying to cover up an assassination. Yeah, great. Good. He, he appealed the conviction, but he remained in prison. Until... 
Oh, no. July 4th, 1995, when Charles and two other inmates, Gary Settle and Michael Rivers, attempted to break out of the Atlanta Federal Prison using a makeshift rope. Oh, jeez. A warning shot was fired at the trio from the tower, and they surrendered. Charles was moved to Florence Administrative Maximum Penitentiary, a supermax prison in Colorado. Now, Woody did attempt to have Charles' conviction overturned and secure him a new trial. And um, there is a podcast about this whole case. Ooh. Um, I did not listen to it. But it, I forget what it's called. Um, I meant to write it down and I forgot. Um, but Charles did die of a heart attack on March 15th, my birthday, 2007. Oh, geez. <laughs> so my guess is what Woody Harrelson learned about his dad in the 80s whenever he was going yes. through this crazy shit trial. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. I mean... I mean, okay, that's here's my two cents. Ready for my two cents? I, yeah, I want to know your opinion first. I 100% think Charles was a contract killer. I 100% think that Charles killed all of these people. But I do also think 100% they did not have enough evidence to convict him. I agree. And especially not off of one jailhouse conversation. He, no, he should not be in general, like in the public ever. Ever. However, to convict him on that, no, there was not enough evidence against him. And that judge doing that is just shows you how, like, corrupt, you know. And I don't think he um, helped with the assassination of JFK. I don't think so either. Um, Let me tell you my two theories, okay? Uh, The first one is something that I kind of got from another podcast, but also I'm like, it kind of makes sense, is... So JFK, remember how they they always say, oh, there's two bullets, there's two bullets, there's two bullets, there's two entry wounds, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's hard to do from one vantage point on the top of a tower and, you know, shooting downwards. You're going to have one kind of like angle you're coming at. That's why the grassy knoll is so controversial because they're like, surely someone was on the grassy knoll, whatever. Point is, from the way that he landed kind of forward then back, the idea is that a new Secret Service member, you know, because they're all holding rifles, yeah, accidentally, and then shot the president. Plausible theory, I think, yeah, and they found a scapegoat. Oh, shit, this guy. You know, because Lee Harvey was already on the edge, teetering on, you know, white supremacist shit and Nazism anyway. So they were like, we'll just make this guy the scapegoat, you know. Second theory. So the Warren Commission, much like many other government agencies, they signed off on everything in the Warren Commission because it looked good, but in all actuality, the evidence was to the contrary. And then when they released the Warren Commission, they're like, look, we, we, did, the, we did the research you guys wanted. Here's the answer. You, here's the answer. See? It couldn't have been done this way because we did these measurements and all this kind of stuff. But in all actuality, the Warren Commission report itself is a cover-up for what actually happened. Now, what actually happened? I don't know. I agree with you. I don't think this guy, whoever, like actually killed any, anybody. Definitely not the president. Or, excuse me. I do think he killed people. I don't think he killed JFK. But I don't know. I And I got that theory from that celebrity hometown, Mankiewicz, because he said his dad was a reporter at the time and being told by his sources inside the government that, look, we're going to put out this essentially puff piece about what happened to JFK. We all really know the truth inside internally, but this will make the public happy and hopefully everyone can just chill the fuck out. And I was like, oh, shit. If your dad's telling you that and he was on the inside line with, you know, deep throat, whoever at the time, I believe that. Because like we know journalists get told things all the time that are supposed to be like state secrets, either to like Snowden expose what's going on or to build a case against someone bigger. So I don't know. Those are my theories. Lee Harvey could have also just fucking done it. Who knows? The guy was a nutball. I mean, according to Chuck, Lee Harvey did it for the mafia as a hit and the mafia killed him. I've heard that theory too, actually. Because there's a, and I found that out at the Mafia Museum in Las Vegas. Go there, by the way. It's worth the money. 
Um, that is another theory because there was this like cadre of, you know, the mafia controlling a lot of things at the time, the 60s, before they did the whole big sting operation in the 70s and 80s to get the mafia out of all of New York and most of the United States. And yeah, they were very powerful. So it's possible. Very possible. I'm just saying. So wait, so Woody Harrelson's dad is a fucking contract killer. Yes. Where did I get that he was children of God? Maybe because like a lot of movie stars back then were. I mean, I don't. So I only covered um, his dad. I don't know what happened when after his dad left. I don't know how he grew up with his brothers and his mom. Yeah. I mean, Woody and his brother Brett are both actors and his brother Jordan is a voice actor. That's awesome. So, I mean, Diane didn't do too bad raising those boys much better than if Charles had stuck around. So I don't really know what happened to Diana and the boys. I because I wasn't researching. Them. No, you're talking about his dad. Damn. I had no idea. That's so cool. I mean, it's not cool, yeah. but it's interesting so to cool. learn. Your dad's a contract killer. No, murder's <laughs> never the answer, y'all. I tell you this all the time. Murder's never the answer. <laughs> oh, speaking of murder never being the answer, I've been meaning to tell you this all day. What? I ordered my functional psychopath t-shirt from my friend 2010 Minutes. <gasps> Love that. It's a podcast, by the way. Check it out, y'all. 20 Tim Minutes. 1M. Yeah, 1M. When is it supposed to come in? Three days from when I ordered it. So by the time this hits You're our be. two listeners, I will be wearing it. You're going to be repping that shit. Mm-hmm. Love it. That's awesome. Support small businesses, y'all. Even if it is your local podcaster. It does help a lot. And, you we know. stickers. And we, <laughs> shameless plug, that, we have stickers. No, that's not why I did that. I know, I know it's not. It's because we talked about that. Yes, we did earlier, and yes, absolutely. I love that. Are you ready to talk about uh, Trophy Dad this week? Yes. Okay. This do, I, do I need to hold on to my one-legged willy? Yes, you will need to. But not in a, um, no... SA or DV, sexual assault or domestic violence here. But racism, unfortunately, yes. So let's go back in time to the 1940s during World War II. Omaha Beach, June 6, 1944. The Battle of Normandy near the end of the war. A medic is hit by a German shell shrapnel on his inner thigh, back, and groin after his landing craft hit a mine and thinks he might be dead. And this is D-Day, by the way, everybody. He didn't lay down and die. Instead, he did his job. He made a makeshift medical station, cleaned wounds, removed bullets, gave plasma to men, reset broken bones, and even amputated a foot and saved two men from drowning for 30 hours. He helped over 200 men before eventually passing out from his injuries, and he was taken to a hospital ship off the beach. After three days of recovering at the hospital ship, he asked to be taken back to help more people. He asked to be taken back to Omaha Beach, which was one of the bloodiest battles in World War II. Yeah. I would have. Are you sure about that? No. <laughs> I would have been like, cool, cool. So you guys are going to fly me home, right? I'm We're good? A, I'm not a trophy dad or a star mom. <laughs> you are a star mom. I'm a save my own ass type of a girl. <laughs> And ideally not have to do 30 hours worth of, like, resetting bones and amputating feet. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. So who is this guy, right? Waverly Bernard Woodson Jr. was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on August 3rd, 1922. He went to Lincoln University in Oxford, Pennsylvania as a pre-med student. And the war broke out during the second year in high school, so he stopped college and enlisted in the Army in December 1942, along with his younger brother, Eugene. He started studying at the Anti-Aircraft Artillery Officer Candidate School and did very well, but was denied a position after completing the course due to no other officer positions being open. He then shifted course back to his original interest, medicine, and trained as a combat medic. He passed and became part of the 320th Barrage, Barrage, Barrage? I'm going to go Barrage, Balloon Battalion and quickly became a corporal. Barrage. Thank you. Before the Battle of Normandy. So real quick. 
I had to look up this um, balloon battalion because I was just like, wait, what? What does that even mean? Is it hot air balloons? Yeah, essentially. So hydrogen balloons, they're really big and they let them float in the sky above strategic sites like battle sites or like, you know, like like a medic station or um, a strategic placement for troops, you know, where they're staying and they don't want, you know, anybody to see. Um, it prevented strafing attacks from German aircraft blocking their view. So they couldn't see what was down there. And with it being hydrogen, you know, they're not going to shoot at it, essentially, is the is the idea. But they would float these balloons up ahead of so it. So did the enemies know there were hydrogen? I don't know. That's as far as I got with the research on that, because I was like, okay, it's not a World War II <laughs> thing. But I, I thought know, it was really kind of cool. I know who would know the answer to this. Oh, you have a World War II uh, in line? Because I know I... My son is a history major. Oh, there you go. So what are they called? It is the Barrage Balloon Battalion. So I'm going to go forward a little bit in time now and talk after G-Day. So Waverly's commanding officer recommended him for a Distinguished Service Cross... But General John C.H. Lee thought his action deserved a Medal of Honor. The U.S. Department of War, special assistant to the director, suggested that President Franklin Roosevelt award it to Waverly himself. Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was not president at the time, by the way, who's a he major strategic planner of the D-Day invasion, um, stated that the 320th Battalion, quote, carried out its mission with courage and determination and proved an important element of the air defense team. So even though he did all of this, he got a bronze star and a purple heart. Very distinguished awards by themselves, but not the highest honor that was originally suggested. And let's be honest, what he really deserved. So why the fuck not? Why is he getting denied jobs and awards and things like that? Waverly was black. The Philadelphia Tribune wrote of this injustice of him not receiving the Medal of Honor he was up for. Quote, the feeling is prevalent among Negroes that had Woodson been of another race, the highest honor would have been granted him. Even the U.S. Army released a news statement at the time. This is in 1945. Quote, modest Negro soldier who was cited by his commanding officer for extraordinary bravery, which is big for them to say at the time. And I'm saying, and by the way, I'm quoting them why I'm saying that. His battalion, the 320th, was an an all-black army unit. And after the Battle of Normandy, this unit was sent back to the U.S. where they first served in Georgia. While they were treated like shit in Georgia in the 40s, I mean, as black men, shocker. So they were then later sent to Hawaii where they spent the rest of the war. Yeah. I have an answer. Oh, yeah. He says, I believe so, or at least they knew they were potentially flammable. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Like, you're not going to blow up your own ship to shoot at the the enemy, essentially. Okay, cool. Now I know. That's awesome. Thank you. (laughs) So, my eldest pod son loves history. He's a history major. He wants to be a history professor. Love Like, in college. He reads history books. For fun. Like on his free time? Yes, like novels about history. All right. That's... Who are these children? I think they were switched in the hospital when they were in the NICU. (laughs) I didn't think... I don't... I never read for fun, like, during those years, like college years, you know? I drank for fun. I mean, he does that, too. But then he also reads for fun. Again... Are, do they have, like, 48 hours in their days? Like, how does this all happen? I, I don't really know. I don't ask a lot of questions. Yeah, that's probably smart. Yeah. <laughs> so, in 1945, when he was 23, Waverly was placed in the U.S. Army Reserve and completed his studies at Lincoln University, where he graduated in 1950 at age 28 with a biology degree. His brother Eugene was part of the Tuskegee Airmen during the war, could do a whole episode on that, which we're not going to do. No. If you don't know, you fucking need to look it up. This is history. You need to learn. Awful. So when the Korean War broke out, Waverly was called back, 
but he wasn't called to the front lines, which I thought was interesting. Instead, he was called to the UK, France, and the Asia Pacific theaters. I don't know much about the Korean War. It's named the Forgotten War for a reason. They really don't teach much about it. Or... Um, I have a direct line to somebody who can tell you all about it. I'm sure. You, yeah, you do, actually. <laughs> Literally, I do. Like, we could get him on the phone. And, like, just talk. Hey, talk to me about the Korean War. And he would go on for three hours, if not longer. I believe it. If he reads history for fun, I'm sure he knows about the Korean War. And At he's minimum. <laughs> teaching himself Korean. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that's another, again, 45 hours a day. Um, so after the Korean War ended, he came back to Georgia, tried to get a job as a communicable disease expert for the military, but wasn't given the job because he was black. So he became the director of a morgue at Maryland Army Medical Center instead for the time being. So one day at a dance, Waverly met his future wife, Joanne Catherine Snowden, and they married in 1952. They went on to have three children, two girls and a boy, and when he left the army officially, his final rank was staff sergeant. So Joanne said that, quote, he was always interested in medicine, unquote, but he was not able to attend because they rarely accepted black people into most of those programs. Like, it was like a super rarity. He spent 40 years after the morgue at the National Institutes of Health in Maryland, because he was very interested in medical technology. So somehow he got in with the National Institutes of Health, which was like right up his alley. And right. he really, with a major in biology, and then plus he knowing medicine, he was very interested in like like that, like diseases and like the study of it. At one point there was even like a thing about how he like was very interested in like heart transplants. Like he used to be just like fascinated by all of that. He was finally able to work eventually at the clinical pathology department there from 1959 to 1980 when he finally retired. So what disease did he cure? Uh, he didn't. He was just part of oh. the teams. I was getting really excited. Oh, sorry. Now, the buildup is for a reason. Don't worry. He was pretty quiet about his experience in the war for obvious reasons. War is very traumatizing. And also, he was a really humble man. Like, he just didn't really talk about that. He was just like, you just kind of do your job and move on. In 1994, when he was 72, he was presented with a medallion in Normandy for the 50th anniversary of D-Day by the government of France. So even in other countries are recognizing this man. Mm -hmm. But ours cannot. Okay. So also in this time frame, in the 90s, the U.S. did something different and studied the racism experienced by black soldiers during World War II. And through their studies, they realized that obviously not only were many people not given awards that they should have been giving, that they also were treated much differently whenever they did come back from the war. Through this, President Bill Clinton awarded seven black soldiers medals of honors. None went to any black soldiers during the war, it was only until then, even though one million of them served our country. Waverly was not one of the men that got one of the seven medals of honor. Why? Joanne was very kind in her response to this by saying, quote, as long as I'm living, I would do anything to see that he gets the proper recognition. He was a good man. Whatever he set out to do, he made sure he was going to do it well. Her plan to donate the medal to a museum. Unfortunately, Waverly died on August 12, 2005 at the age of 83 at Wilson Healthcare Center and is buried with honors in Arlington National Cemetery. Still not receiving the Medal of Honor before his death. His family is still pushing for him to receive the Medal of Honor posthumously. Posthumously, sorry. <laughs> Linda Herveau, a journalist who wrote the book Forgotten, the untold story of D-Day's black heroes at home and at war, found a document from his commanding officer recommending him for the Distinguished Service Cross and then that John C.H. Lee's office chimed in stating they thought he had earned the Medal of Honor. Here's what the note says, quote, here is a Negro from Philadelphia who has been recommended for a big enough award so that the president can give it personally, as he has in the case of some white boys. So this note was sent to the White House at the time. So this is basically the smoking gun saying the highest honor is the fucking Medal of Honor. Yeah. He's being suggested for it. So now that his family knows of his like existence, again, journalists coming through, 
They signed a petition and started one to help this come to be. Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland stated in a 2018 letter to the Secretary of the Army, quote, the only thing that stood between him and proper recognition at the time was the color of his skin. This case is an opportunity for the Army to do to right a historic wrong. The Army responded saying it was compelling, but, quote, it needed corroborating primary source material. Okay, bro. I mean, I don't know how much more source material you need. That fucking basically says it. But get this. Here's why he doesn't have it. In 1973, a fire in the National Records Center in St. Louis destroyed millions of military records. Huvo said, quote, The conventional wisdom of D-Day is that there are no black soldiers who landed on those beaches. But the truth is that there are almost 2,000 black soldiers who landed by the end of the day on June 6th. So his shit was lost in that fire. Oh, my God. And... Because of that, the army's like, well, but we don't have, like, definitive proof, so, like, we can't do it. It's like, bro, he's not even around any. What's it going to hurt you to give a freaking Medal of Honor to this guy? Not going to hurt you at all. Like, literally. (laughs) It'll make you look good if you do it. Like, I don't understand the holdout still to this point. I bet you if they had fire sprinklers in that building, then those records would have been saved. (sighs) Seriously. So here are the awards that Waverly did receive. An American Campaign Medal, Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, Bronze Star Medal, European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal with Arrowhead Device and two Bronze Stars, Good Conduct Medal, Korean Service Medal, National Defense Service Medal, a Purple Heart, a United Nations Medal, and a World War II Victory Medal. So now there is a new interest in his case as of 2020 to help his family receive the award for him. And there is a current change.org petition out there that's linked in our blog, on our website for anyone to sign. Yes, sign it. Go, all two of you, go. To right this wrong for this amazing person. So though it is not he's curing these diseases or whatever else, it really is that day in D-Day where he saved over 200 men, which by the way, were black and white. Because it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. And yet, they still had segregated battalions. They still were treated like fucking dog shit when they came back from the war. They still gave of themselves. And he enlisted. He was not drafted. Like, he set himself out there for this country. And they would not recognize him. So I was just like, we got to do right by him. Yes, go sign the position right now. Stop what you're doing. Stop. Yeah. Because yeah. we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Are you done with this episode now? <laughs> Is what you're saying? <laughs> no, I want people to go sign that petition. Well, on that note, go sign the petition. And as always, we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'll see you next Tuesday.